These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Shapililiuma initiated one of the most remarkable single-year military campaigns of Hittite history around the year 1365 BCE. Burning the land of Isua, he had punched deep into Mitanni territory, sagging the capital, driving out the coward beggar king Tashrata, and foisting another royal brother onto the throne. This had severe knock-on effects, as this also happened to be the year that the Assyrian king Ashur-Ubalat, who would be a pretty significant force over in the northeast, took the throne and would be able to use the new weakness of the Mitanni to assert Assyrian independence. But we'll be getting to Assyria soon-ish, which I've been promising for a number of episodes now, but soon will come eventually. More relevant for our story here in the West, the Mitanni will continue to linger for quite some time, but they have in one year been beaten in a way that they will never really recover from. But it almost seems like, for Shapililiuma, the subjugation of the greatest nation of the Near East was a side note, something he did on his way to the real objective of taking over the wealthy cities of Syria. Without pausing, he pretty much took every Mitanni-aligned city in Syria, besieging mighty city after mighty city, overwhelming each so quickly that he was able to take the entire thing in a single year. Some cities, like mighty Ugarit, a huge and wealthy Canaanite coastal town, simply volunteered to join before the army even approached. Others, however, were more of a problem. Shapililiuma was moving south, nearing the end of his year-long blitz, and he'd just taken the city of Katna. Now, Katna's interesting all by itself. It's been a semi-major power ever since Hammurabi's time, yet despite existing and being wealthy and respectable, it's had very little effect on history, and so it's existed on the fringe of the story for quite some time. The point is, though, that there was now one more place left for the Hittites to conquer, one last Mitanni-aligned city in West Syria, the region of Apina, just north of modern Damascus. This region will come to be the de facto Egypt-Hittite border for quite some time, and we'll see a good deal of fighting around Apina in the years to come. But the important thing for Shapililiuma is that between Katna and Apina, was a city called Kadesh. Now, Kadesh has already seen some interesting back and forth, having been grabbed by Pharaoh Tutmos I 150 years before, but then fallen back to independence during Hatshepsut's reign of foreign neglect. Independence, of course, means Mitanni control, since that was to a great extent the attraction of Mitanni kings, that they cared basically not at all what their subjects were doing. Tutmose III, however, had put an end to that, and Kadesh had ever since been part of the Egyptian sphere of vassals in Syria. Shapililiuma, in his lightning conquests, had been scrupulous to avoid Egyptian interests as he marched through Syria, and he had every intention of simply bypassing Kadesh as he moved southwards. However, for some reason, the lord of Kadesh, a man named Shatarna, made exactly the wrong choice, 
grabbed his chariots for a suicide march against the main mass of the Hittite army, against which they were shattered and beaten utterly. At that point, Shapililiuma really had no choice but to finish the job and walk over to the now undefended Kadesh and install a new king. Why did Shatarna attack the Hittites? Did he believe he was going to be attacked first? Did he have a treaty with some local Mitanni king, a situation which wasn't supposed to happen but often did? Did he think he could somehow win and increase his prestige? Did he think that the Egypt-Mitanni treaty bound him to come to the aid of the Mitanni? Ultimately, we have no way of knowing, and King Shatarna the Overeager of Kadesh and his little raid left us basically one line in the histories. This one line, though, was Shapililiuma crossing the line, and Egypt, who had likely been weighing the pros and cons of rallying to their Mitanni allies, decided that they would now be at war with the Hittites. But not right now. Right now, they were at the climax of a religious revolution, building a massive new city and possibly in the first spasms of a great plague. The Egyptians contented themselves for now with taking notes and waiting for a better moment when the grudge could be satisfied, which suited Chipililiuma quite well. He moved on to his true target, Apida, and concluded his year of astonishing conquest with, no doubt, a great deal of personal satisfaction. He had won everything he set out to win at minimal cost, and though he likely expected a substantial Egyptian response, he may have had enough knowledge of the Egyptian court to know that they were busy at the moment with internal affairs. In fact, one of the issues which may have given Shapililiuma the confidence to even begin this venture was the matter of Abdiashertas' conquests through the Egyptian Canaanite territories. Now, this is a massive story, one which more properly belongs in the history of Egypt. And so if you're interested, I'll have a link to Dominic Perry's amazing History of Egypt podcast, where he tells the full tale of Abdiashurta in fantastic expert detail. Even if you aren't listening to the rest of his show, I highly recommend you check it out, episode 123 and 124 of History of Egypt. But realistically, many of you don't have time to listen to it right now, and so I'll summarize the issues here real quick. The Levant is made up of myriad little regions, and one of them is Amaru, one of the places where old Amorites may have originated a number of centuries ago. A local warlord named Abdiashurta started conquering cities left and right, pressing up against the Canaanite city of Byblos. Now, the city of Byblos, sometimes called Sumer, had enjoyed very close ties with Egypt over a millennium at this point, and were a very loyal and prosperous Egyptian vassal. Thus, we have a large number of letters in the Amarna archive from the mayor of Byblos, nearly all of them sounding the alarm about Abdiashurta and his violent activities. I should mention that Abdiashurta was using Habiru warriors, much like Idrimi had in Idrimi's Syrian adventures not long ago, showing us that this fringe group of society was both militaristic and seemingly omnipresent. 
Anyway, the mayor of Byblos keeps getting pushed harder and harder, while the Amorites take more and more territory, infringing heavily on Egyptian interests and eventually driving the mayor of Byblos out entirely. Abdiashirta was playing a delicate game, sending letters to the pharaoh insisting on his loyalty, managing to say all the right things and keeping his activities just below what might force the pharaoh to respond. And as it turns out, the Egyptians were way too busy to care about some Levantine possessions and simply let Abdiashirta get away with whatever he wants. Abiyashirta died, a victim of the many enemies he had made, but his sons, particularly his inheriting son Aziru, managed to take over and continue just as dear old dad had done for well over a decade now. By now, however, the pharaoh had started to consider more carefully the competing issues of the mayor of Byblos and the king of Amaru. Again, I'm brushing over quite a lot of drama here, but the short of it is that the pharaoh finally sends out a letter to Aziru, saying that if he comes down to Egypt for a face-to-face -face meeting, everything can be worked out. Now, this sounds like a trap, an easy way to catch a wayward vassal, but Aziru went anyway, and it turns out that it wasn't a trap, but a genuine attempt at reconciliation. Or at least... It was sort of that, and sort of also a trap. Akhenaten kept Aziru in Egypt for an entire year, and it isn't clear whether or not he ever intended to let the Canaanite go. It seems that there was a rumor that his son had sold him to the Egyptians to get him out of the way, and let the son take over up in Amaru. But whatever the pharaoh's intentions had been, it was rendered moot, when letters arrived reporting that 90,000 Hittite troops had descended upon Syria. Now, a lot of times historians will talk about the numbers that various folks record for posterity and complain that they're absolutely unreasonable, usually meant to portray whoever wrote the record as incredibly awesome. But these were actual contemporary letters claiming 90,000 Hittite troops. Now, it can be debated whether the people at the time literally believed there were 90,000 Hittites or not. It would hardly be the first time that people fudged facts for political gain, and history tells us that it would not be the last. Conversely, Shapilileuma is absolutely plowing through massive, heavily defended cities. It's quite possible that if you were on the receiving end of whatever tricks he had up his sleeves... It may have felt like there were countless tens of thousands of men attacking you all at once, especially since we know that the Hittites loved ambushes, night raids, and lightning-fast marches, and had troops used to changing their weaponry, equipment, and dress in different terrain. Such a flexible army, in the hands of a military genius, could well make his army seem much larger than it really was. That said... 90,000 is a vastly inflated number. Nothing contemporary suggests that any of the great powers were re realistically capable of fielding even a third of that at this point. While we don't have solid numbers here, judging by other campaigns before and after it, something in the range of 10 to 30,000 fighting men is far more reasonable even though this is a pretty substantial army, even in itself, 
and the numbers may have been much closer to 30,000 than many think. Anyway, with Shapililiuma's first campaign underway, Pharaoh was convinced to let Aziru go back and defend Amaru, for the good of Egypt, naturally. However, the campaign, Shapililiuma's campaign, was finished so quickly that Aziru didn't arrive until it was already finished. His kingdom of Amaru had not been on Shapililiuma's itinerary, and so Aziru had a mostly intact power base from which to operate. And for at least a little bit, he used that to intimidate the city of Ugarit. But Aziru quickly saw which way the wind was blowing and concluded treaties with Ugarit, as well as with Kadesh, both of which are by now Hittite vassals. Eventually, Aziru was involved in a plot to overthrow the mayor of Byblos, which turned out to be a step too far for the pharaoh, and Aziru was again summoned back to Egypt. This time, though, Aziru simply said, oh, no thanks, and hopped over to the Hittite great king and signed an alliance, which exists in pretty good condition to this day. In fact, Shapililiuma is currently hanging out in Syria, managing the aftermath of his first campaign and potentially waiting for an Egyptian response. I'm not going to read you the whole of these treaties because they can be a bit repetitive, but it's worth knowing that while each one was, in a small way, unique and tied to the circumstances of the nation involved, they were also quite repetitive. A Hittite treaty begins with an introduction, laying out the titles and glory of the participants. By Shapililiuma's time, the so-called parody treaties are pretty much gone, and the majority of the glory is heaped on the great king himself. Typically, there will be a bit in here saying that the vassal king is subordinate to the Hittite king, and that the vassal may never violate the oath he's giving with this treaty. Next up, most Hittite treaties have a historical introduction, which is often the most interesting to us nowadays. Though this history is often politically filtered, it's also often the only recounting of the events for these smaller kingdoms. Next up is a discussion of tribute, which could often be substantial. A treaty then demanded an offensive alliance, that the vassal would join the Hittite king in his wars, and a defensive alliance that each side will defend each other if attacked. Fugitives were apparently a big concern of the Hittite kings, and one thing prohibited in every treaty was for a vassal king to ever hide fugitives in the vassal's lands. Rebels, enemy combatants, slaves, and common criminals are all included here, and cross-border fugitives must have been a major problem since we see them addressed in pretty much every treaty, even going back to the older days. At this point in the treaty, more specific things can be addressed. Perhaps a border can be clearly laid out, usually in terms of lists of geographic features. Or, in the treaty with the northern barbarians of Azihayasa, this is where the king took a moment to let the northerners know that incest with a man's sister was in fact uncivilized and would be henceforth prohibited. After that, the treaty would conclude by invoking a number of gods, both Hittite and from the local nation, asking for their blessing, then laying down a curse on whoever would violate the treaty. Now, this is all pretty standard stuff, but what's interesting is that the treaties rarely go much further than this. At its core, there are three main things expected of a vassal. 
tribute, military aid, and catching fugitives. That's it. There's no effort made to get them to worship particular gods or to follow particular laws or even to submit legal cases to the king for judgment. The incest prohibition in Azihayasa is remarkable precisely for how unusual it is. The Hittites were not building what we would think of as a territorial state. The king was concerned pretty much only with having an army and receiving tribute, and all the matters of governance were to be devolved as locally as possible. This left the empire a hodgepodge of heterogeneous communities, but if diversity is a strength, then the Hittites must have been quite strong indeed. Not that they were doing it for diversity's sake, more likely the Hittites had a worldview similar to the Mesopotamians, wherein the world itself was considered static, and how things are today is how they'd always been. Political boundaries could of course shift and conquests could move things back and forth, but the idea that the cultures, technologies, cities, and ideas could rise, fall, and mutate does not seem to have been realized yet. They probably didn't try and turn their conquered people into Hittites because they simply didn't realize that you could. Anyway, Shapililiuma sat in Syria for the next few years, managing the aftermath of his invasion and keeping everyone in line. Borders were redrawn for the benefit of those who had supported him the most. That one Nuhashi king who had joined way back before Shapililiuma had even started campaigning was made top dog over the whole Nuhashi region. Ugarit, which joined willingly, saw its territory expand fourfold. Kadesh and Amaru were allowed free reign to beat up minor Egyptian vassals. All of the gains of the favored came naturally at the expense of those who had been late to the Hittite bandwagon, or who still continued to resist. Katna, for example, went back to Egypt a year or so after the war, and was, shall we say, sternly corrected for this mistake. All this managing was done from the city of Aleppo. While the other cities had all been given local rulers, once they had sworn vassalage, Aleppo was actually properly conquered, becoming Hittite royal territory, essentially a secondary capital down in the south, much closer to where all the action was. However, the Hittite government, while used to kings leaving every year for campaigns, was not set up for the king to be away for multiple years at a time, and had a quite busy schedule of holy rituals that technically required the king's presence to be properly performed. The king could, and often did, appoint a substitute for these, but Shapilalayuma had been away for a very long time at this point and needed to return. And so he took his son Telepanu, who had been appointed as high priest in Kizawatna, and appointed him as southern deputy king down in Aleppo while Shapililiuma himself returned to Hattusha to spend some time satisfying the demands of the gods. Now the timeline here is incredibly hard to establish, but it seems likely that it's the year perhaps 1358 when Shapililiuma felt confident enough to leave Syria to one of his sons. This was the year he could finally relax, knowing that no Egyptian response was forthcoming. 
Pharaoh Akhenaten had died, and Egypt had been thrown into a measure of political chaos in the aftermath of his grand ambitions. The city of Amarna will be abandoned only a few years later, and the Amarna letters, which had given so much character and detail to the era, cease at this point. It may have been this political chaos that let Shipililiuma know that the hammer blow from the south that he'd been waiting for was in fact not coming, at least not for a while. Shipililiuma's withdrawal was taken as an opportunity by the coward King Tashrata. What has the old Mitanni king been doing? It isn't clear, but what he hasn't been doing is sitting in the Mitanni capital, since we know Artatama held that city until his death, and by now he's been succeeded by Artatama's son, Shatizawa. The coward king in exile seems to have been hanging out, perhaps in Karchemish, a Mitanni city right on the Euphrates River, that stands now as the westernmost fortified outpost of the kingdom. What exactly Tashranta did isn't clear, but he appears to have made some kind of ruckus and tried to cross the Euphrates into Hittite-controlled Syria. Thankfully, even though dear old dad was away, Tilipanu, as king of Aleppo, had the independence to respond immediately, pulling his troops together and smashing Tashranta's army, despoiling and perhaps occupying the land around Karchemish. Tilipanu didn't go all the way to the fortress city, either because he didn't have the military capacity or because he lacked the authority to finish the job, but Tushrata was again humiliated. A little bit later, perhaps as a result of this, Shabililiuma called his son Tilipanu to the Hittite homeland. He wanted to discuss whether things in Syria were getting so bad that the great king himself would need to return with a full army. Shapililiuma didn't want to commit to going all the way to Aleppo yet. The Kaskins, it seems, were active again and had been taking much of his attention. But he also recognized that pulling Tilipanu out of Syria, leaving only a small garrison of some 600 chariots, would practically invite disaster. And so the two met halfway, right around the southern Hittite border, just a bit north of Kizawatna, for a conference on the matter. And it turns out that everything Shapililiuma had feared would happen by recalling his son did indeed happen. The coward Tashrata may have finally been murdered at this point by a group of his own sons, doubtlessly appalled at what a scumbag he was, though this assassination could possibly have happened after this next war. Whoever was leading Karchemish popped out and laid siege to a nearby fortress at Murmuriga, more worryingly, Egypt has by now gotten its act together, and the young new pharaoh Tutankhamun, popularly known as King Tut, saw an attack against the aggressive Hittites as a way to both revenge Egypt against its wrongs it had suffered during Shapililiuma's first campaign, and as a good way to establish the young king's authority in the aftermath of his father's wild reign. The Egyptians marched on Kadesh and it isn't clear if they took it, besieged it, or just raided in force around it. Whatever the case, Shapililiuma's diplomacy appears to have pretended that this was a wholly shocking and completely unprovoked attack from a power with whom he was at peace. This is, of course, 
utter nonsense. But it's always interesting to wonder just how thoroughly these Bronze Age kings drank their own Kool-Aid. After all, from Shapililiuma's point of view, he'd never meant to conquer Kadesh. The act had been forced upon him by a crazed Egyptian vassal, who was behaving in a way that should qualify him as a rogue actor. Thus, in his own mind, the great king had never actually violated Egyptian territory, except for allowing his vassals to subvert Byblos and other cities in Egyptian Canaan, and for stealing Amaru, but that was the pharaoh's fault for mishandling that situation. Now, it all seems ludicrously tendentious, but, of course, in modern politics, we see people all the time holding on to views with equally strained chains of logic. Though, of course, this only happens to people who disagree with me, since the logic of people who agree with me is never strained. Anyway, regardless of which king thought what actions were justified, Shapililiuma had finally found himself in the situation he had feared even before becoming king, the active war against Mitanni and Egypt. But the Hittite Empire was in a far better position than it had ever been in before. The Cascans had just been beaten back. The West Anatolian states were well contained by the permanent border garrison that Shapililiuma had left to keep them in check, and Mitanni was on its last legs. Perhaps he also knew that Egypt was in the process of convulsing internally from plague, religious conflict, and more succession challenges. Shapililiuma couldn't take both at once but he could appoint a general to go down to the borderland of Apina, around modern-day Damascus, to go raid and just generally see what he could do. Meanwhile, Shapililiuma himself took the great Hittite army and went over to Karchemish, the last Syrian bastion of the Mitanni, and prepared for seven days for an assault. On the eighth day, the king himself participated in the assault, driving his chariot ahead of the army up into the inner city where the temples were. Standing at the gate of the inner city, the great king turned and personally halted his army. He said, Beyond this lay the great and holy temples of Kubaba and Lama, and probably some other gods too. Despoil and pillage the lower town to your heart's content, but the upper sanctuaries will remain inviolate. The usual Hittite custom was to remove the gods from a temple and carry them off to Atusha or one of the nearby temple complexes when they sacked a city, a way in part of taking a god hostage, but also a way to get more gods on the Hittite side providing blessings. By now they often speak of and swear oaths by the thousand gods, and by all accounts they likely had perhaps at least that many cult statues in the many holy places watching over the empire. Karchemish, though, unlike Aleppo, was not to be merely plunder. It was to be fully annexed and brought into the greater Hittite empire, with another of Shapililiuma's sons made viceroy over the city. This son, Piashili, would change his name to a Hurrian one, Shari Kushut, and Karchemish and Aleppo will remain special cities among the Hittite holdings until the end of the empire. 
Indeed, not to get too far ahead, but Carchemish and Aleppo will in fact manage to survive as Hittite bastions even after the fall of the Hittite Empire. Historians call them the Neo-Hittite Kingdoms, but of course they would continue to think of themselves as continuations of a much longer tradition, not unlike the Eastern Roman Empire at Constantinople. And here is where we solve a biblical mystery, the question of who the Hittites mentioned so often in the Old Testament are. The priests and kings of ancient Israel never dealt with the Hittite Empire itself, not as we've been talking about it at least, but they did interact somewhat frequently with people from these successor states. And so, where we can, we'll be paying special attention to Aleppo and Carchemish. And to help you out, there's a map on today's show notes over at oldeststories.net. Anyway, with the fall of Carchemish, Tushranta is certainly dead. He may have been dead before, but he's definitely dead now. The only king of Mitanni has signed a treaty with Shapiliuma, which clearly puts Mitanni at second rank. Mitanni king Shantizawa is married to one of Shapililiuma's daughters, and the treaty clearly states that while the king may take concubines, his legal heir may only come from the Hittite wife. It is emphasized that it was Shapililiuma who placed Shantizawa on his throne, and the frontiers are set in a way quite favorable to the Hittites. That said, no tribute is demanded of the Mitanni, and many aspects of the treaty, such as the alliances, fugitives, and declaration of friendship, are in fact on parity. Most interestingly, there appear to be two versions of the treaty, one with the provisions that put the Mitanni clearly below the Hittites, and another that omits most of those provisions, just vaguely promising friendship. It's believed that Shatarna was allowed to take the Blander Treaty home, hoping that it would mollify the Hurrian vassals to believe that he had signed only a very mild treaty, while the full provisions were kept in Hattusha. Meanwhile, in the east, the Assyrians had not only broken free of Mitanni control, but also established their own quite significant kingdom along the North Tigris River. Lesser Hurrian states at the fringes of our historical record may also have fallen out of the Mitanni sphere, and with this treaty, though Mitanni wasn't yet destroyed, it has been reduced to a rump state. While we've seen the Hittites rise from much worse, we will not be seeing any similar Mitanni resurgence. The age of the Mitanni Marianu charioteer dominating the battlefields has ended crushed in a remarkably short time by the military brilliance of Shapililiuma and his Hittite armies. Down in the south, though, something odd has happened. Young King Tut, who's been born with a number of congenital defects, has died. The exact cause of his death is apparently a bit of a mystery, but it doesn't really matter for our story. The Egyptian raiding force and Hittite delaying force had more or less negated each other, and with the death of the pharaoh, the Egyptian soldiers withdrew back across the border. But that isn't the odd part. After all, kings die pretty often. No, what happens next is the interesting part. A message arrived in Shipililiuma's court from the deceased King Tut's wife, Ankanesen Pa'aten, 
who was also his half-sister, because Egypt is just a magical land, saying, My husband died. A son of mine does not exist for me. But for you, they say, your sons are plentiful. If you would send me one of your sons, then he would become my husband. I do not want to take this servant of mine and make him my husband. I am afraid. Apparently, when Shabilaliuma heard this, he exclaimed, Never before has such a thing happened to me. And he has good reason to be confused. Remember from previous Amarna letters just how touchy the Egyptians were on the subject of sending their royal daughters to other nations to marry foreign men? Here, an Egyptian queen is inviting a Hittite prince to come and be the king of Egypt. This is unheard of. Other nations in history have invited foreign kings to sit on the throne, but for Egypt, this is so far beyond what's conceivable that Ankes and Pa'aten must have been quite distressed indeed. Shapilaliuma was simultaneously eager and cautious, and instead of sending one of his sons directly to capitalize upon this opportunity, he instead sent a trusted advisor as a messenger to go and figure out the truth of the matter. This doubt almost cost him the opportunity of a lifetime, and likely the hesitation involved in sending a messenger instead of a son changed the course of history forever. Ankesen Pa'aten was distraught in her next letter, saying, Why did you speak in me this way? They deceive me. For if a son existed for me, would I have written about the shame of myself and of my land to another land? You did not trust me, and even spoke to me in that way. He who was my husband has died. There is no son for me. I do not want to take a servant of mine and make him my husband. I have not written to any other land. I wrote to you. They say your sons are plentiful for you. Give me one of your sons. To me, he will be husband. But in the land of Egypt, he will be king. Now, Shapilaliuma could not risk missing this, and his son Zananza was sent to Egypt with all haste. Time went by, for messengers, even in all haste, require quite a while to travel back and forth from Egypt to Anatolia. But for an extended period, there were no messengers back from Egypt. The nation was in turmoil. The 18th dynasty was, depending on how you count these last few pretenders, either dead or dying. The very confusion which had made it possible for the Egyptian queen to consider so bold a step was now delaying message traffic back to the Hittites. Finally, however, word reached Shapililiuma that his son had been murdered on the way to Egypt. The queen who was offering her hand in marriage had instead been married to the very servant she had feared, the former vizier of Egypt named Ai. Ai is suspected to have killed Zananza, though he claimed innocence. But either way, Shapilaliuma was overtaken by rage and despair, and called out to the gods, shouting, O oh gods, why? I have done nothing evil, but the men of Egypt have done evil to me. They had killed his son. They had attacked the borders of his land without provocation. And it was surely in the back of his mind they were weak, in the chaos of a dynastic transition. 
Vengeance must be had, and this flame of vengeance will consume the next four generations. Next week, we will look at the final years of Shapiluliuma's reign, then we'll move on to his successor, whose name is thankfully much easier to say over and over again. We're getting into the exciting part of Hittite history, if the preceding episodes have been exciting enough, and are finally on the road to the greatest battle of the late Bronze Age, though still a few episodes away from that. So join us next time for violence, vengeance, and divine retribution, all falling in unexpected places. Thank you for listening.